0: It is good to be back with you again. Carl and I have enjoyed this two-week trade, and I want to invite you to say hi to my folks. I'm gonna take a little video, okay? Everybody ready? So as I take the video, everyone wave, and you can say hi, Washington Ethical Society, okay? Okay, go. (laughs) Okay, yeah, you sound about as organized as we are, so well done. (laughs) I'm going to share that with my, uh, with my folks back in D.C. It is good to be with you. It is always good to be together on a Sunday morning, especially after challenging weeks. <laughs> this has been a hard week nationally, hasn't it? We're going to talk today about a particular justice issue, one that is both local and national, but I can't help but experience it within the context of the national conversation we have been having this past week, the conversation about health care as we have been on the edge of our seats, night after night, it seems, down to a few senators to turn the tide, And the conversation, too, that has arisen after um, tweets from our president earlier this week. And so before I turn to the subject that I'm going to address today, I want to just say from a pastor's heart, and I know I bring Carl's heart with me as well, I want to say to all of the trans and genderqueer and non binary folks that I love, that are beloved in this congregation and in your own lives, that you are a disruption only in the best possible way. A disruption. a disruption of the little tiny boxes that bigots try to make, a disruption for all of us who work in a cis area in in a heteronormative and cis-normative place. I think about our own hymns. We're singing two hymns I love today, hymns that go back to my childhood, and both of them include binary gender language. And so I want to say how grateful I am to my trans siblings, my non-binary siblings who disrupt with beauty and grace, the little boxes that serve no one. And I speak in deep gratitude and know that you share that and hope that you reach out to those who are beloved in your life and tell them that you love them this week. Well, it has been quite a week. Those few senators, I think my Facebook feed in the last couple of days has been disagreements about which senators to honor and which senators not to honor. (laughs) Of course, that assumes that you have senators at all. (laughs) Those of us who live in Maryland are able to feel righteous indignation toward folks that we elected or gratitude toward those we elected, depending on how they vote, For those of us who live in DC, in the District of Columbia, that takes righteous indignation to a whole different level. As I'm sure most of you know, folks living in the District of Columbia have no voting representation in either House, the House of Representatives or the Senate, and they do not have authority over their own budget. You may even have seen the license plates in D.C., Taxation Without Representation, one of, and I will say just one of, the colonies of America. Puerto Rico is in a similar situation, as is Guam, and our other territories. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about what the lack of home rule really means in D.C. and where it comes from, and why I think you and Frederick, out here in the suburbs should care about it. My guess is I don't need to convince most of you that D.C.'s lack of elected representation on the federal level is a shame. Polling has actually indicated that the majority of Americans support voting rights for district residents, provided that they even know that folks in D.C. don't have the right to voting representation. Mostly, I'm sorry to say, people don't know in America. We in the capital area tend to be more aware and I think it's likely that many of us not only know about DC's lack of congressional voting representation but also want to change that. If you are anything like me though, you aren't always sure exactly what what that would entail to change it. Maybe you wish you had a better grounding in the ethical reasons, the religious reasons I would say, that this issue can be our issue here even in this community. So let me start with some history. I'll say I'm indebted to a great document created by DC Vote, which is a nonprofit organization that works on this issue, and by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, and to a paper titled Seat of Democracy or Home of Hypocrisy. I like that one. By Nell Shafer for much of what I'll share with you this morning. So the District of Columbia was incorporated in 1791 with the idea that it was safer to have a federal government that wasn't located within a state and therefore somehow favorable to that state's interests, which makes sense when you think about it. That didn't mean, of course, that the individuals living in, the dis- in that new district couldn't vote. Australia actually has a similar situation with what they call the Australian Capital Territory, and its residents have full federal representation, so the two don't need to go hand-in-hand. Hand. And in fact, the residents of D.C. had that representation in the beginning. In 1801, though, just 10 years later, Congress passed the Organic Acts, which took away representation from residents of the district. It's not the kind of organic that we currently flock to Whole Foods to buy. They still had some form of home rule, however, electing their own officials and government until 1874, when Congress took over total control of D.C.'s affairs and stripped it of all of its home rule power. D.C. residents didn't even get the right to vote for president until 1961. Can you believe that? And of course, they still don't have voting representation in Congress. We do have a long-serving delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's given permission to speak on the House floor and who uses that permission well, but she cannot vote. Beyond representation in Congress, D.C. has had to fight for its right just to make its own decisions, a right that is by no means fully granted today. The Home Rule Charter of 1973 gave much authority to the city, but it's always pending congressional oversight. D.C. is governed by a mayor and by a city council representing all eight wards in the city, but all of their decisions, every single one, may be overturned by the U.S. Congress. And Congress must approve D.C.'s budget, much of which is made up of local tax dollars. So residents of the District of Columbia tax themselves, raise tax money, and the decisions that they make about how to spend those dollars can be overturned by Congress at any time and sometimes are. This kind of congressional oversight means that individual congresspeople have historically used D.C. as a kind of battleground, playing to their bases or just playing out their own agendas on this little piece of land where they work but don't live. This has been especially scary for D.C. in the last six months, as you can imagine. Historically, congressional restrictions on D.C. have run the gamut from keeping us from controlling gun sales, so D.C. has historically had very tight gun laws, and Congress has overturned that on occasion, to excluding us from programs to help at-risk youth. The same goes for D.C.'s vital needle exchange program, particularly important in a city with one of the highest HIV AIDS rates in the country. I wonder, though, what lies even deeper than these particular policy issues? What does it do to a people's psyche to be disenfranchised for so long? Reverend Mark Schaefer, no relation to Nell Schaefer who wrote that paper, who was the Methodist chaplain at American University and a longtime advocate for DC voting rights, addressed this question in a paper he wrote in 2002 entitled Christian Ethics and Voting Rights for the District of Columbia. It has been the experience of disenfranchised communities, he writes, that the effects of that disenfranchisement go far beyond those outlined in the laws that exclude them. In the District of Columbia, 200 years of disenfranchisement has had a profound effect on the social and political culture of the city. Generations of children have been raised under the notion that their input into running their own lives is irrelevant. Indeed, it is not uncommon to find in the voting rights movement a high proportion of non-native Washingtonians. Natives of the District of Columbia have become accustomed to the lack of political power as their lot. They are injured in ways that go far beyond the political sphere, but go to their very self-esteem and human dignity. The wrongs of disenfranchisement, he concludes, penetrate all areas of life. It's impossible for me to hear those words and not consider the relationship of voting rights disenfranchisement in D.C. to systemic racism and white supremacy. First of all, because simply talking about a people who have been regularly and legally disenfranchised sounds an awful lot like the African American experience in America. Second, because my guess is that the lack of voting rights disproportionately affects D.C.'s black families, many of whom are multigenerational D.C. residents, while among the white D.C. community and particularly the white upper-middle-class yuppie D.C. community, of which I consider myself a member, saying that you've lived in D.C. for more than five years gets a response of, oh, you're almost a local. It stands to reason that populations who are able to practice more mobility because of higher income levels and a lack of family rootedness might be annoyed that they don't have a vote, but realize that they can quickly rectify that situation with a move to Maryland or Virginia or back home to Ohio or Florida or any other state in the Union. And third, I see the tie between D.C.'s disenfranchisement and the historic disenfranchisement of African Americans because it is a commonly accepted fact particularly within DC's African American community, that the district's lack of voting representation is linked to its status since about 1950 as a majority black city. In the paper I cited earlier, Seat of Democracy or Home of Hypocrisy, which is subtitled The Role of Racism in the Struggle for Voting Rights in the District of Columbia, Nell Schaefer begins her research with the location of the federal government in DC when the city was already 30% black, the majority of them free. Leading up to the Civil War, free blacks were subject to restrictive codes in D.C. that governed where they went, how late they stayed out, and whether they could swear in public. They couldn't. During the Civil War, and of course particularly after the District Emancipation Act of 1862, which freed enslaved people within the District of Columbia, African Americans came to the city in droves. They immediately began working to get the right to vote, and despite strong opposition locally from whites, Congress approved that right in 1867. As Schaefer writes, within less than a year of being granted voting rights, black men accounted for over 45% of the total registered voters in the district. Blacks at that time, during Reconstruction, were elected to the City Council, which actually passed an anti-discrimination bill desegregating public spaces in 1869. It didn't last. Isn't it a funny coincidence that just two years later, in 1871, Congress passed the first bill stripping D.C. of much of its home rule authority? This bill created a territorial government, which was actually kind of a disaster, and was quickly followed by that bill we mentioned earlier, the 1874 bill, that turned complete control of the city over to Congress. Actually, no one really thought it was a coincidence. Politicians at the time were very happy to make clear why they had taken over control of the district. Schaefer quotes from Senator John Tyler Morgan of Alabama at that time in 1871. It was necessary to burn down the barn to get rid of the rats, the rats being the Negro population and the barn being the government of the District of Columbia. Now, the historical fact is simply this, Senator Morgan went on, that the Negroes came into this district from Virginia and Maryland and from other places They came in here and they took possession of a certain part of the political power of this district and there was but one way to get out, so Congress thought, so this able committee thought, and that was to deny the right of suffrage entirely to every human being in the district and have every office here controlled by appointment instead of by election in order to get rid of this load of Negro suffrage that was flooded in upon them." End quote. It's nice when the racism is just so clear. Over the next almost 100 years, D.C.'s fate was in the hands of Congress and often the least able members of Congress. They were, of course, all white, mostly segregationists. Schaefer quotes historians Harry Jaffe and Tom Sherwood, who wrote, The city was under direct control of committees that were the least prestigious in Congress. They were a proving ground for junior members or a dumping ground for embarrassing ones. Blacks in Washington had endured slavery, the restrictive black codes of the 1830s, and the riots of 1919, but Congress made the racism institutional." Attempts to push for home rule in the 1940s were met with speeches nearly as ugly as those given in the 1870s, warning that the district's blacks, or as they were called, the children of the alley, as described by one white D.C. resident who opposed home rule, would ruin the city. The 1960s saw advances for African American enfranchisement and civil rights nationally, and again, not coincidentally, advances for D.C. voting rights, with the bill allowing D.C. residents to vote for president in 1961. Although arguments against Home Rule were getting a little more veiled at this point, Schaefer cites a 1965 national poll on district voting rights in which 70% of those opposed to Home Rule responded that they were opposed because there are too many Negroes they would take over. In 1967, D.C. won the right to a city council and mayor of its own election, which is what it has now. But white supporters of home rule, so white supporters, white residents in the district who wanted home rule actually campaigned to have a majority of the council and the mayor be white, to have that institutionalized so as not to so much, too much disturb Congress. D.C. said no. The district has never been served by a white mayor. In 1974, D.C. received the limited form of home rule it currently has, some control of local decisions, but with final authority, veto power, and budget approval resting with Congress. D.C. statehood became a possibility in the 1990s as Congress examined the issue. Of course, we know D.C. wasn't granted statehood. And from my perspective, the reasons are even more telling than the outcome. Schaefer writes, according to a congressional index compiled by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, statehood was the most racially divisive issue in Congress in 1993. The Congressional Black Caucus emerged as statehood's strongest opponent, with 97% of its members voting in favor of the act. Only 64% of the next most liberal contingent, white, non-Southern liberals, approved of statehood. District of Columbia statehood was the most racially divisive issue examined by the LCCR, dividing blacks and whites more than issues including gays in the military, a constitutional amendment to balance the budget, violence against women, and racial discrimination in capital offenses, end quote. There are, of course, plenty of arguments against D.C. statehood and against D.C. home rule and voting rights in general. And these days you are unlikely to hear a senator say that he opposes D.C. statehood because the rats would run the city. More frequently, you might hear cited DC's sometimes challenging record of corruption and unbalanced budgets, although I do not hear Congress calling for the repeal of voting rights to those states with unbalanced budgets or to those states with corruption, of which there are a few. The legacy of racism in DC's history is difficult to ignore, and we would be naive to think it suddenly disappeared because it has gone underground. I hope you have caught a little bit of righteous indignation. If not, let me add a few more logs on there by citing what happened just in my nine years serving at the Washington Ethical Society. Over those nine years, we have faced and in fact endured government shutdowns uh, several times. My husband works for the federal government, so we're always on the edge of our seats in my family wondering whether he'll be home next week or not. On the oh-my-goodness-that-would-have-been-annoying end of things, a federal government shutdown would have meant um, the end of trash pickup in D.C. Frequently when the government shuts down, D.C. has no trash pickup for that period of time uh, until the city gets to a state um, that is so fragrant that trash pickup is deemed an emergency service. It closes D.C. libraries, a federal government shutdown. And um, in a recent expected shutdown, just until a budget deal was announced, there were serious questions as to whether D.C.'s public schools would be able to remain open during a shutdown. In 2011, D.C. was used as a political pawn in what has to be the most bizarre give-and-take ever to balance an almost $4 trillion federal budget, $4 trillion, As part of the deal that finally got a balanced budget through, DC lost the right to use local money to provide abortions to low-income women in the district. That program costs $90,000 a year. Whatever you think about the program itself, it's hardly likely to be the key to a balanced federal budget. This is, as far as I can tell, pretty ridiculous. Over the years, council members and mayors have protested, been arrested along with activists including yours truly, protesting the ludicrous use of D.C. as a meaningless but symbolically powerful political pawn. What I wonder is why there aren't people in the streets every day, waving D.C. flags, getting themselves arrested, speaking out against the obvious injustice done to the residents of the District of Columbia. I think the answer can be found in that idea about what happens to your psyche when you've been disenfranchised for hundreds of years. And it goes, of course, beyond D.C. residents but to anyone in our country, in the world, who feels marginalized most of the time. People are tired. Some are hopeless. Some think voting rights would be nice but unlikely. And of course, since they don't have representation in Congress, D.C. residents also don't have political clout to make it happen. There are a couple of ways to respond to this. First, and here I hope that you in Maryland perk up your ears, D.C. cannot fight this fight alone. I want to say to you that no matter where you make your home, if going into the city means going to the District of Columbia, for a show or a restaurant or the museums, then D.C. is your city, and D.C.'s fight is your fight. I would hope, in fact, the same could be said of residents of any state who call D.C. its capital. We hear a lot about the swamp, but D.C. isn't actually house of cards, it is a real city filled with real people. D.C. residents would be much less hopeless if they could see that folks in other states have their backs. There's another reason, though, why I think this issue belongs to us, a reason that is as much about hope and faith as it is about policy. Religious congregations, movements even exist for many reasons, a sense of community, helping people through the joys and struggles of life, helping people to sort out right and wrong. They also exist to give people a sense of what is possible. To hold up a shining maybe when the world looks like a lot of no. Some religious traditions, of course, hold that maybe in another realm, but many are like ours, asking people to create the maybe, to build it, to live with the hope and the faith that the world can be different than it is today. We say we believe in the inherent worth of every person, something which is not always self-evident in reality. We believe in it anyway. We are faithful to that possibility, that hope that every person is worthwhile and precious. D.C. is not going to win voting representation this year. It is not likely to win it during this Congress. And it would be easy to throw up our hands and say we don't know if we will ever win it, and that spending time on it doesn't really make any sense. My first answer is practical. What we need to do now is make the issue of D.C. voting rights so obvious and well-known, so clearly unrighteous, that as soon as the political climate is right, and I live in the hope and faith that it will be one day, that it will be the first thing on anyone's list. But my second answer is about providing hope, about believing when the reality is not self-evident. One of my favorite Hebrew Bible prophets is Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has some of the most beautiful passages, the wolf and the lamb lying down together, that's Isaiah. The dream of a place where no being shall be hurt or destroyed on all my holy mountain. The other thing I like about Isaiah, though, is that he called out to his people even though he knew he would fail. The story tells us that God called Isaiah and told Isaiah that God had a mis- mission for Isaiah. And Isaiah said, essentially, oh, and will I succeed at this mission? And God said, no. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> and Isaiah has some choice words. Um, Primarily, well then why would I do it? And, and God says, well, will you go anyway? And Isaiah says, yes, send me. God told Isaiah ahead of time that Isaiah's mission would fail, his prophecy would be ignored, the people would fall into ruin and be forced into exile, and all those things happened. Isaiah, Isaiah knew all of that, and he tried anyway. He believed in the importance of calling out truth and righteousness despite such sure failure, simply because truth and righteousness must be heard. Now, I will be honest, I would like us to have slightly more success than Isaiah, but I resonate with the idea of standing up for a cause even when its outcome is uncertain. You may have other causes in your heart, other hopes, other justice issues that seem today impossible, a reality that may never come to pass. I invite you, with those issues with D.C. voting rights, with single-payer health care <laughs> with anything that seems unlikely, not just to resist against that that seeks to bring it down, but also to cast a vision so beautiful that you are called to speak for it, even when you think you will fail. D.C. voting rights is a hard issue to tackle. The fight for the district's autonomy and self-determination is connected in so many ways to our other work for justice. Our hope for continued equality and safety for LGBTQ folks in D.C., our hope to improve the neighborhoods of D.C. throughout the city, our work on supportive housing and youth in D.C., But more than all those practical reasons, the reasons why I can see that true home rule and budget autonomy would help the district, I support voting rights for the district because it is so clear it is the right thing. Because it is a start toward correcting centuries of racist policies, a living example of white supremacy at work. Because it is fair, and fairness matters, especially when you believe that all people have worth. And because even though I think it seems unlikely, or far off, or sometimes hopeless, I choose to believe anyway. That is what we do for each other in a community like this one. Bolster each other up, remind each other to have hope, Remember the places where we choose to live by faith, to raise our voices for the possibility of a better tomorrow. Our time together this morning is finished, but our work is not done. May our spirits be renewed and our resolve strengthened as we meet the challenges of the week to come this challenged flame is extinguished until we ignite it again with the spark of our communion. Blessed be. Friends, whatever justice fight pulls on your heart, may you stay strong. May you have faith, even when the impossible looms before you. And may you create that faith with the lifting of your voice. May it be so for you this week. Amen.